0: We'll be taking from Mark, chapter four, verses 14 through 20. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, uh, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. There likewise are the ones sown by the stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. These are the ones sown by the good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit. Uh, some 30 fold, some 60 and some 100.
1: Everyone, hope you all had an enjoyable day today. My, uh, most of you know, my wife's family is pretty large. She has like several aunts and uncles and lots of cousins, and now those people have children, and um, we ended up having a three-hour and 31-minute lunch at Olive Garden today. That was great. Whew! Left Lancaster at like 4:08 today after lunch. It was just it was brutal. I knew it was going to be good when uh, Lisa was like, just pay the bill and I'll take Reed outside because Reed was, you know, kind of at that moment. And I walk outside and there's Reed like rolling down the grass hill at White Castle, like just, it's one of those like, oh, happy Mother's Day. Lisa gets to be a mom with a cranky baby, so that's how it goes. Boy, I hope you're doing okay tonight. Um, I want to set a scene that most of you will probably be familiar with this summer Uh, I had glimpses of it the last couple nights when the weather was just beautiful, and we um, were outside on our deck and just enjoying some weather, but I want you to get a scene of beautiful weather, maybe having a cookout, and the grill is going, and um, some masterful chef is making maybe uh, hot dogs and hamburgers, if you're doing well, maybe they're making some steaks, and... um, Plenty of just delicious side dishes around and people you enjoy to be with. It's just a great sort of afternoon picnic, cookout day. And as soon as the burgers are done, you begin building that delicious grilled burger with the marks on it. You put it on the nice bun and you start adding layer by layer all of the things that build just a great burger. And you get to the end and you add that fresh garden tomato. You know, the, the, the special color red of, of the ones that come out of the garden that are really good. So people say, I don't like tomatoes, but they say that they're good. Um, And as you place this beautiful tomato on top of your burger, you just sit back and you say maybe something like, ah, tomatoes. They have to be one of my favorite vegetables. And immediately your should have been on Jeopardy friend uh, pipes up and tells you that, actually, did you know? Tomatoes are a fruit. And from that point forward, then you can have an interesting conversation. And let me tell you, for those of you that like to ascribe to the fact that tomatoes are a vegetable, not a fruit, you're going to learn tonight that the Supreme Court of the United States agrees with you. You ready? So there's been a lot of important Supreme Court rulings in our history. Many, um, they've sent waves of conversation through the public square of our culture. They've altered collective beliefs of our nation. And most of these decisions carried, you know, moral implications like civil rights or women's suffrage movement, abortion, marriage laws, things like that. But, um, you know, these come and go all the time. But what we have with this one we're going to talk about tonight for just a moment is just culinary confusion. Um, Back in life in the 1880s in America, it was known as the Gilded Age when there was economic prosperity, life was good, so to speak, there was, um, you know, for the wealthy life was really good, and there was a lot of advances happening in technology and transportation, skyscrapers were being built, railroads were being laid at an incredible rate, and one of the businesses in the 1880s that had a lot of difficulty was the import and export business. At that time, tariffs, which are like taxes that you have to pay if you import something, it's called a duty rate that you have to pay, um was pretty high. And so in 1883, Congress decided to try to work on a law that was going to reduce the tariff rates for things so that people would be encouraged to import and then possibly as well as export to increase um, international trade. And so then in 1883, Congress passed a Tariff Act that ended up placing a 10% tax duty rate on all vegetables that were to be imported. And so it seemed like no big deal until the Nix family, NIX family, who owned a large importing business, brought in a load of tomatoes from the West Indies. They brought them into the New York port. And so the port collector in New York, Edward Hedden is his name, quickly applied the 10% tax to those tomatoes, citing that they were part of, they they were a vegetable. And he charged the company. The company of the Nix family angrily protested that a tomato was not a vegetable. They they were frustrated by this. They were angry. And they paid the money, but this ended up uh, happening where the Nix family sued Edward Hedden and also the New York Port. Um, It was a six-year legal battle that landed them in the Supreme Court of our nation in 1893. It was there that the Supreme Court ruled that a tomato was, in fact, a vegetable. Commercially, They declared it, that it was a vegetable. Um, It was known that way. I'm sure that it had nothing to do with the fact that the duty rate on a vegetable is higher than the duty rate on a fruit. So, I'm sure the ruling of the government had nothing to do with being able to tax more money, right? No way at all. They ruled on the side of paying more taxes. But culinarily speaking, we've also seen it this way as well. Typically, the divide between fruit and vegetable in the culinary world is savory versus sweet. And so we look at things like cucumber or green peppers or tomatoes and we call them vegetables. When really, they're actually a fruit. Botanically speaking, biologically speaking, tomato is a fruit. A cucumber is a fruit. Green peppers are fruit. It falls into the definition biologically of what a fruit is, and that's what this is tonight. A fruit is a seed-bearing structure that develops from the ovary of a flowering plant, and it then is the means by which these plants will then disseminate their seed into the world. So you take something like a tomato, which is a fruit that comes from a vine, and it's in that... Fruit that the seed for the next tomato plant can be found. But the other thing that's really cool about a fruit is you can consume that seed. You can eat that tomato. You can ingest it and enjoy it. So why tell you all this? Because that's exactly where we are in our series tonight on the series of receiving. We're finishing up an eight-part series on receiving and coming back to the place that we originally started. We started with the, sermon, uh, with the parable of the sower and the seed eight weeks ago when we talked about being ready to receive, being people that are cultivated and ready to be receptive from God. And we have said every week that the posture of a Christian, the way that a Christian stands before God, must be with an open mind, an open heart, and yes, even open hands. That all that we have is from God all that we are is from God. Paul would say it this way, by the grace of God, I am what I am. All the work that you and I would intend to do in the kingdom of God is because of Him. He says we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then Peter would tell us the very way that we have the strength to do the work that God has called us to do is come from God Himself. So if we do work in the kingdom of God, even that is a a posture of receiving strength from God to be able to do that. So the whole posture of a Christian is reception, grace, mercy, appreciation, and most certainly gratitude. So as we come back to this parable that Aaron read for us in Mark chapter 4, You'll see um, this parable can be found in all of the Gospels except for John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all have their version of it. And in each one of them, Jesus tells just the parable to a large group of people. And then after he finishes telling that parable, uh, some of his disciples, his close ones, come to Jesus and they've got some questions about it. They don't understand it. They want to learn more about it. And so then Jesus begins to explain that parable. um, But inside of that he says, listen, to you it's been given the opportunity to understand the mystery of the kingdom of God. This is a gift to you. To be able to see the parable of the sower and the seed for what it really is. A truth teaching about the kingdom of God. And then He would explain, starting in verse 13, He said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then do you understand all the parables? You see, parabolic language was very, very popular uh, for Jewish teachers. Most of the rabbis spoke in parable. That's why Jesus was so astonished at Nicodemus when He came to him by night. And He said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. And Nicodemus, listening to that parable about being born again, said, I have to enter my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus is just amazed, and He says, you're a teacher of Israel. How do you not understand this? Because parabolic language was so common in that culture, and so when Jesus is saying this to them, He's teaching them a parable about the kingdom of God, and He says this way, so we come back to the parable we learn, that we learn first of all, that being prepared to receive is of utmost importance. Two things that we learn about in the parable of the sower and the seed first of all that the soil matters the receptivity of the soil matters the way that the soil is cultivated the way that it looks the way that it's ready matters and the second thing that we learned is that what is sown is the seed which is the word of god which is ultimately as we see jesus christ revealed himself being the word of god but he starts first of all with the soil And it's receptiveness that seems to take the most attention of Jesus Christ, because he's pretty clear about what the seed is and what it's trying to do. And a quick reminder, when Jesus was telling this parable, uh, farming in, in that situation was so much different than farming is in our culture here today, where we have incredibly clear boundaries and definitions of where certain fields are and who owns what field and where you're supposed to walk and where you're supposed to drive and you're supposed to stay off certain ground. We're we're pretty clear on that in our culture. We have well-defined travel ways and we have well-defined acreage on knowing where to farm. In fact, we're so well-defined that we'll even rotate certain products or produce in different parts of fields so that it, the different nutrients can be used in the ground and then it can have rest. Well, It wasn't that way when Jesus was teaching. Um, there were main highways that were traveling from city to city and there was a lot of land and homes that would be spread out in that land there. And when you would go from one highway to the next, they called that the, the, the shortcut or the path. And that would just be walking through probably the flattest spot. And so as a sower would go out, he would start casting seed and he might hit a place of some rocks. He might hit the road that people walk on. He might hit an area that was not yet cultivated, but he also might hit some area that he scratched up that is really cultivated and ready to receive. And so when Jesus tells this story about a soil and he says the sower goes out and sows and some of that seed falls along the wayside, that's the main trampled down pathway that people would walk so it's like throwing seed in the middle of this aisle and trying to see it grow. There's nothing by which this that the seed could latch onto to grow in this aisleway because it's so hard because it's made of concrete and we walk on it. and It's not meant for growing anything. And so Jesus says that that's where Satan comes and he just takes the seed away. The second one was stony ground. Ground that it has earth in it, that has some dirt and some soil and the seed is able to get inside of that dirt. Receive some water, spring up with some life, but there's so much stone underneath of that that the moment that that plant sees a little bit of sun, that it scorched just a little bit, any amount of difficulty, it stops immediately and dies. He says, because it has no root. And the third one he says is good earth. It's able to receive not only the seed that comes from the sower and bring forth a plant, but it's also growing with it different things like thorns and thistles and weeds. So there's a lot of things that are taking place in this third soil. This is one I think we ought to pay very close attention to as we consider the own soil of our own heart. You see, in this soil, it's not that it wasn't able to grow something. In fact, there were a lot of things happening in this soil a lot of competing things. Look how Jesus describes this in His explanation um, in verse 18. And other ones sown among the thorns, they are those who hear the Word, but the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things. Do you see the amount of activity going on in this, if you will, heart and mind? This isn't just dirt. This is heart and mind of a human. This this mind has on it. Do you ever felt this way before? you got so much on your mind, maybe you lay down at night and you just can't sleep. Look at the amount of things that are going on in this mind, in this heart. It has cares of this world deceitfulness of riches. And what that is is not you can't have money, you can't be rich. The deceitfulness of riches is that if I finally have abundance, I'll be okay. And so the answer of how much do you need to the person who is deceived by riches is it's never enough. I need more. That's the deceitfulness of riches that he's talking about. And so every night when you go to bed, you may have enough, you may have food, you may have a shelter, you may have clothing, but in your mind you're thinking, I just need more and more and more and more and you can't rest. And so he says that's deceitfulness of riches. And finally he says there's desires for other things. And when those enter in and those are growing alongside of the seed, you'll see life from what the sower threw out there. You will. You'll see vines, you'll see plants growing, you'll see a stalk, you'll see green, you'll see things getting taller, you'll see life. And so like you and I would see spiritual life coming up. But there's one element that is missing in this third soil. He says at the end of this, it proves to be unfruitful. And so what happens, because of this these things that are growing up in the soil alongside of the Word of God, alongside of Jesus Christ in our hearts, what's going on is that it grows, it has a plant, so it's here, it's in the building, it's behaving like a Christian, it's living a religious life, but it has no ability to take its seed and grow again. Proves to be unfruitful, cannot be passed on to a second generation that vine that grows in that soil will grow, it will be seen, it will be recognized as a vine, but will not plant into another place of soil to see growth again. It's one generation is what it is. And so what Jesus gets to in the fourth one here in verse 20 is this. Those that were sown on good soil are ones who hear the word, accept it, and they bear fruit i gave you some stu- uh, from the very beginning i gave you some practical information that i believe can help us know how we can cultivate our soil to be receptive not only growing a vine but also being fruit bearers number one i believe that we should be people that ask god for help in cultivating the soil of our heart ezekiel and prophesying about what this would be like in the new in the new kingdom or the kingdom of god that was coming he said when, they would, uh, when, when this new kingdom would be ushered in by Jesus Christ, He said, He promised, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from, you, from your heart a stone, uh, the stones and give you a heart of flesh. And so there's this promise from God before Christ ever came that when He does come, that He'll make an exchange with us, that if we yield to Him and submit to Him, that He'll take from us this heart of stone and put into us a heart of flesh. So asking God is vital. Number two, we need to be people that are cultivating the soil within us, to turn over the soil, which can be hard work, which can be labor and can be painful. But we've got to be people that are cultivating the soil for depth. First of all, in our relationship that we have with God, we need to be cultivating for depth. Like David did in Psalm 139 when he cried out to God, when he was thinking about all of the ways in which God has has been interwoven into his life, he says it this way in Psalm 139, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David was laying himself before God and asking to be cultivated in his relationship with God. Later, the Hebrew writer would describe the Word of God as having this ability when he says that it's able to, like a two-edged sword that's sharp, divide between your thoughts and your intentions. So when you and I don't even have the ability sometimes to go inside of ourselves and see all of our thoughts and our intentions for what they really are, the word of God has the ability to pierce even through those and lay before us who we really are. God can do that for us and he most certainly wants to. And secondly, we mentioned that we should be cultivating deep relationships with each other, having good friendships, friendships that make a difference. I read for you in Psalm or I'm sorry, Proverbs 27, let me read you just a few of these that speak to how we should be relating to each other. Uh, Just Psalm 27, there's a few verses I'll share with you. Verse 5 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Verse 9 says it this way, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. That's the sweetness of a friend when they have real, good, honest counsel for us. That they're willing to share with us the reality and truth with us. Verse 17 says this, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. We cannot underestimate the value of cultivating real, authentic, deep relationships with each other to help prepare our soils. And lastly, uh, I encourage you to weed out lifeless branches and weeds of the heart and heart-hardening traffic. Things that just pound on your heart that make it hard for the soil or for the seed to penetrate into your soil. James would say it this way in chapter 1. Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the Word of God planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. One of the greatest deceptions That Satan has offered us in this country of Christianity is the thought that this is just an intellectual religion. That you and I can align our ideals and agree on certain doctrines and say, yeah, you believe this is wrong and I believe this is wrong and just align what we think about Christianity. And he says here, don't listen just to the word. That's deceiving yourself, but actually go and do what it says. And so weed out the things that bring moral filth or evil that that can plant into our hearts and choke out the Word of God in us. And so, after doing so, we are then ready from God to be receptive. And that's really what we've been trying to work our way through over the last six weeks is being people that receive from God the things that we're supposed to receive. Things like forgiveness. Reconciliation, the Holy Spirit, love, grace, and discipline. And when you see in the fourth soil, when those types of seeds are sown from God to us, and we are a soil like you see in the fourth, fourth soil, this good soil that is cultivated, that is taking diligent effort to be ready to receive those things like, that I've mentioned, that good soil produces fruit. Fruit. And fruit is where I want your mind to land with me tonight. Fruit. The Word of God produces fruit in us. You see, every time the Bible speaks of the work of God in our lives, it is always spoken of as fruit. And at the same time, whenever the Bible speaks of our own um, living according to our own means or living according to the flesh, it always uses the word work. It never says the word work of the Spirit, and it really never says the fruit of the flesh. It says the works of the flesh, meaning that's what we produce, works of the flesh. But He says it's fruit of the Spirit. Now, why would God use the word fruit to describe what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in our lives as He sanctifies us and as we become receptive to what He is doing in us? Why would He use fruit? Because fruit is a seed-bearing structure that can easily be consumed and enjoyed and all the while be the thing that plants more seeds to perpetuate its growth. I think what we're seeing in the fourth soil is Jesus' real plan for evangelism. starting with soil that is cultivated, receiving seed, letting rain and sun that comes from the earth, that comes from life, grow forth plants, and in patience, seeing fruit come from our lives, which is able then to be received by other people. This is God's plan for evangelism. Evangelism is often felt like the first priority for a new believer to engage in. Immediately. I don't know if any of you ever felt this way before, like, man, I just haven't really evangelized enough. haven't really maybe brought enough, saved enough, done enough. The concept of evangelism has placed a lot of pressure on very early and very new Christians in a way that that's how you solidify or seal that you're a real believer, that you actually propagate this message. And so the moment you receive it, you go send it to somebody else, and that verifies that what you're doing is right. And in some ways, I think we've lacked patience in the field of evangelism. Now hear me when I say this. I'm not saying that's not the highest priority of God. I believe people who are lost and unbelieving coming to faith is God's highest priority. But the method by which He accomplishes that is something we've got to continue to discuss. In Ephesians, when we studied last year, chapter 4, he said that he gave some to be prophets, apostles, evangelists. Pastors and the teachers. And immediately after that, he said that those pastors and teachers that are placed in the body of Christ are there to build up and help all of the members become mature in Jesus Christ. And when they become mature in Jesus Christ, they grow up and the body becomes strong, growing together and edifies or grows in love. And in doing so, becomes ready to be people to bring forth the fruit of evangelism. Go with me to Colossians chapter 4. Let's see if Paul can bring some clarification in Colossians 4. What caught my attention on this is as I was reading back through a lot of the New Testament epistles because you've got you got the Gospels which really declare the greatness of Jesus Christ acts which is our history book and then from that point forward Paul Peter James and some of these guys are developing a a teaching a theology about Christianity and writing back to churches and Christians and a massive amount of content in these letters as he's writing back to current believers has to do with their own personal maturation in Jesus Christ. And he would oftentimes end like he's going to end here in Colossians chapter 4. Listen to what Paul says in verse 2 Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. You see what Paul's asking the body of believers in Colossae to do? He's saying, I'm asking you to be prayerful and watchful, but I want you to labor in prayer with me that God would open a door for my evangelism. I think in this moment right here, he's wanting them to be more serious about cultivating the soil of their own heart so that they can bear forth the right fruit for evangelism. Before they just go out into the world and take a handful of seeds and throw it into somebody's face, calling it Scripture, I think he's telling them to cultivate your soil, plant some seeds, pour some water, let some sun, as he says here, watchfully, and start bringing forth some fruit so that the Word of God can be propagated. And he says in verse 5, here's how he says to do it. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Make the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I believe evangelism. Spreading the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of what He has done for us, becomes immensely easier when we start bearing fruit for what He's actually done for us. We can only tell people about what God has actually done for us. So if all Jesus Christ has offered you is a new form of religion and a guilt-relieved conscience, that's all you can offer people. Like, hey, you should come to my church. You won't sleep bad anymore. But when we really start digging into the reality of what God is trying to do in us. You see, the highlight of what Jesus Christ ushered in was not just a judicial courtroom for pardoning, but life transformation. Paul said it's not circumcision or uncircumcision, but it's a new creation that matters. And when you and I are serious about cultivating our own soil and letting the seed of forgiveness and reconciliation and the Holy Spirit and love and grace and discipline be sown into cultivated soil. And we water that soil and let sun rain on that soil. And it begins to grow real fruit. We then become people that can go to others and say, listen, Jesus Christ is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me because He brought me forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, love, grace, mercy, and the rest of the list. But until we become people that are fruit-bearing, we're just throwing seeds at people. We're just chucking seeds at people. And how many of you like to have a plate brought out to you of seeds? We like the fruit, don't we? We like the product. So let's be people that are fruit-bearing people, serious about our own transformation and sanctification, and when you see God start bringing resurrection of dead things to life in your life that gives you something to talk about if that's something Jesus Christ is not something that is really affecting your life right now if he has not become the thing that is really motivating your transformation maybe he's something that he's kind of mysterious you don't really understand who he is or what he's really promised to do for you Um, that's really what we've set aside having elders, ministers, and deacons available for to stop all things and talk to you about who Jesus Christ is and what He has promised to do for you if you and I would just be people that cultivate our soil so that we're ready to receive. If you're ready to receive tonight, won't you come as we stand and sing?